one party in Sydney is a really kind of sweaty, hot warehouse party. And I'm over the NPC programming drums and I was sweating into the NPC. It just short-circuited mid-party. Peak of the party. That's amazing. Party's over. Signal Flow, a podcast that explores the technology, techniques, and ideas behind music in the digital age from input to output. My name is Erin Barra. I'm an associate professor here in the songwriting department at Berklee College of Music, and I'm interested in the intersection of creativity and technology. So today we have our special guest, Mark DeClive Lowe here. Hey. <laughs> I'm really excited you're here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I have a really interesting story about how I know who you are and uh, your music, actually. It's not true. It's none of it's true. <laughs> no, you'll think it's really funny. Okay. Um, so back in, I'd say 2006 or around-ish, mm-hmm. I used to be a bottle girl at a venue called SOBs. Okay. In New York City. I know it well. Yes. Yeah, so I saw you play there. Wow. The, about... 10 or 11 years ago, Uh maybe. And I had uh, recently graduated from Berkeley and I was, I did a piano performance major and I was just getting into digital technologies Mm -hmm. then. And when I saw your show, I saw a piano player who was doing things that I was interested in, Mm -hmm. in a completely different context. And it sort of like blew my mind right open. Wow. And so I mimicked the original versions of my live set were sort of built on the ideas that I saw you construct live on stage. That's so flattering. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so I saw you were coming, and I got really excited about the fact that you were here with us today. That's a cool story. Yeah. I'm glad someone at the venue cared, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I was there. I was a bartender also for three years, Mm -hmm. and I saw music live five nights a week for three years, and it was pretty crazy. But there were some standouts, and yours was absolutely one of those one of those events for me. Thank you. So since the um, since the podcast is called Signal Flow, mm-hmm. I was hoping you could kind of break down the signal flow of your live rig. Sure. Um, it's uh, I, I guess the heart the heart of it for me is Native Instruments Machine. So all of my kind of MIDI programming, all the drums and synths and bass sounds are being sequenced in machine and hosted by machine. But I have machine hosted within Ableton. So Ableton is the master as far as clock goes. And then if I'm doing a solo set, I often have um, like acapellas and source material I want to remix. So that's all all living inside Ableton. all my master effects are running through Ableton. And then I also have a couple of chaos pads. I like the chaos pads because they're, you know, they're outside of the box and there's a tactility with them, which allows me to be just, it's very kind of responsive and intuitive the way they work. Um, so I kind of have these different ways I can resample what I'm creating. I can resample them through the chaos pad. I can resample them through Ableton. Um, and then, continue to play with those those samples, those live samples. Uh, I have the rig set up so I can sample anyone I'm playing with. So if I'm, 
I often have like a grand piano myself and I can sample that or horn players or vocalists. I've got everyone patched into a mixer so I can select who I want to sample at any point in time. And I usually sample them directly onto, onto the chaos pads um, rather than through Ableton. And that's, I mean, that's basically what it is. There's, there's two, I use, basically. yeah, I use, <laughs> I use two, two USB controllers, um, two MIDI controllers where I basically map them. One of them is mapped so it's, it's an audio mixer, basically. So the faders and, you know, master effects, high pass, low pass filters on, on each subgroup of sounds. Um, and then I have one more, which I use to, I use it also for audio and then like a keyboard map to a beat chopper, kind of beat repeater plugin. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's very simple. <laughs> that's it. The beauty of it is, to me, is that it's blank. Like, when I start a gig, you press play, absolutely nothing will happen. Right. Unless I do something. Yes. And, you know, I, I sometimes have, you know, I, I, have, I have particular motifs or tunes I like to play or like to to use. But for me, I'm always curious as to how how is this going to be tonight? You know, like, for example, if it's, it might be Stevie Wonder Superstition Acapella. And I know that, like if I'm if I'm doing a dance floor gig, especially, I know I'm probably going to use that at some point, but I have no preconception how, when, what key, what musicality or anything. So that's that's the fun for me. It's like I'm. It's always surprising me and kind of revealing itself to me in different ways. That's what I like about live performances that feel really on the edge with electronics. Mm. It's almost more exciting than watching like a traditional jazz combo improv to me right. <laughs> because there's there's this like element of danger that doesn't exist when you have real it's instruments. Hi- it's highly risky. Real? Yeah. I'm doing air quotes for those of you who can't <laughs> see me right now. Um, so the input of the chaos pads, one is a vocalist that you're sampling perhaps and then the other is machine or what are the inputs on the chaos pads? Yeah, exactly. Pads? So there's two chaos pads. One of them is for all the machine stuff and the other is for whatever the sample material is whether it's an acapella i have in ableton or a vocalist or the piano or the sax player all the live samples go through one chaos pad so then i can end up with two chaos pads which are i think of it kind of like a dj setup we have two turntables and i have this independence between the two of them i can filter one or not the other or and it it gives me a continuity where once I sample off all the computer-based music into a chaos pad, then the computer, which is machine in this case, is then free to create more material. Mm-hmm. And so then that way I get a seamless set, basically. Okay. Yeah. How long does it take you to set the whole thing up? Um, on a smooth day, I can do it in 40 minutes. 40? 40? Four zero. That's a long time. What you thought? You thought I said <laughs> one four? I don't, I don't know. I was. I no, just so needed to be. Well, it's funny when it, if it's a difficult day, like um, you know, some of the, some of the equipment's on backline, like the like a, a, a sixteen channel mixer and some keyboards. Once in a while, there's a keyboard that doesn't play friendly, like you know, Yamaha MIDI controllers aren't very friendly, mm-hmm. or the mixer might be something wrong with it. Or that kind of thing gets challenging, but. If that doesn't happen, yeah, about 40 minutes and 20 minutes to rig down. So the biggest challenge is when I play a festival. And, you know, you're playing a festival, there might be 15 minutes between the bands. Exactly. You've got a setup, no sound check, you line check and you play. And sound check is 
pretty much imperative for me too. If I'm performing solo, I can get away with no sound check and just kind of tweak as I go. But with the band, the whole aesthetic is about the the sonic and volume balance between the electronics and the band. Right. So that gets pretty challenging. So you don't have 40 minutes to do that. No, I mean, oftentimes I'm like the band before me is playing and I'm at the side of stage rigging up on a table or something and just working out some way. I had one gig in Germany where if I'm playing a grand piano, most of the gear is on the piano. Yeah. But the piano is being used by the artist playing before me. Mm-hmm. So they took the, the, the lid off the piano and brought the lid backstage. <laughs> And I built everything on the lid, and they carry the lid back out with my stuff on it and you know, reconnected it. your rig evolved over the years like from the initial con- initial conception of this this idea that you had and putting it into practice to today it's evolved i think a lot um and the idea it came about initially because i was playing in clubs in new zealand where i grew up and yeah you know, we'd have this kind of jam band with like two drummers and you know two of mo- almost everyone playing, I guess, freeform funk music, basically. Two of everyone? Well, two keyboard players, two drummers, usually one bass player. Okay. But, yeah. Um, That's cool. But the, the, the two-drummer idea was basically an influence from, from DJ culture. It's like we need more rhythm. Um, but the problem was, no matter how heavy we played, when we take a break and the DJ came on, sonically he would just destroy us. Hmm. And then after the break we'd come back on, and there'd be this gap in the in the sonics, yeah. And so for me, that was that was the impetus actually. And so I was living in London and working with a lot of people who were using MPC sixties, MPC three thousands, SP twelve hundreds, like vintage analog sampler drum machines. And I realized that was the answer. So my rig started with an MPC, a Rhodes, and a Roland JP eighty eighty, I think. Um, and this is like 99, 2000. And so the rig evolved around that, but it was very much built around the MPC and then vintage equipment like Rhodes, Clavinet, Moog, And you were touring with these things. My first world tour, I took a Fender Rhodes with me. Yeah. It cost (laughs) so much money. And I was, I was signed to Universal at the time. So I did a world tour Spent about three thousand pounds in excess luggage. Nice. Got back to London. Went to the went to the label. Went to Universal's office. I was like, "Man, look, this is what happened, and this is how much Sorry. it is." And like, I mean, I need you to hook it up. Like, <laughs> recoupables, right? Like, um, nope. 
We can't do that, Mark. No <laughs> like, way. What? So you had to eat the cost? I ate it, yeah. That is terrible. And of course I didn't know. You can get a Rhodes anywhere in the world anyway, you know. Yeah, but still, <laughs> well, so I, one of the tours that I did, I, I toured with, it was like a, a Wurlitzer A200, right. right? And I loved it. It was mine and it would just constantly break. Yeah. And it would be so expensive to fix it. Oh, yeah. And moving it, it was just such a headache mm-hmm. and... Okay, so you you did actually tour with all the vintage gear once. Cl- yeah, okay, once. one time. <laughs> um, and th- and then I st- was st- even without that, I was still touring with a lot of stuff, and I found like like the MPC. It sounds amazing, especially the three thousand, but I was breaking them. You know, I, one party in Sydney is a really kind of s- sweaty, hot warehouse party, and I'm over the MPC programming drums, and I was sweating into the MPC. It just short-circuited mid-party. Peak of the party. That's amazing. Party's over. That was actually going to be my next question. Was <laughs> I wanted to hear, like, tales. The, the worst of, stories? Well, yeah, because I've had, I mean, oh, I've had things that happened to me you. that you would never wish upon your worst enemy. Of course. So, yeah, could you can you give us some, like, really great live rig war stories? I mean... <laughs> I mean so that was def- that was one NPC. of them. Yeah, so <laughs> never sweat into analog equipment. It's just not a good idea. All right. Um, I went to Cape Town to do one set to, to play forty-five minutes at the Cape Town Jazz Festival, and I, it was with the band. But the MPC is this—that's the signature of the. That's the whole aesthetic, the production aesthetic of the music. And so we set we set up a line check in front of the audience. Everything's cool. Walk off stage to walk back on stage. And as we're walking off stage, one of the crew's like, man, your MPC's smoking, bro. I'm like, what? I turn around and there's black smoke coming out of the MP. Oh, God. So someone plugged the wrong transformer in. Nice. You know, wrong voltage. Somebody. And so we had to play. I yelled out to the drummer. I was like, bro, there's no MPC. You're it. (gasps) And we played. And it was cool. (laughs) And people are still like, oh, man, that was amazing. But it's like, yo, that's not what I came three thousand miles to do. Wow, that's a that's a quite the trek for forty five minutes. Set. Right, that's not how they work. And then as as the the rig evolved, um, which I never even answered that question, but as it evolved and it became digital, you know, I I resisted that for a long time. I was a real purist with that. Um, and then Native Instruments kind of chased me down because I was using the MP so much, and they just put out machine or machina, as they like to say. Yes. So they, um, you know, they sent me one, and I just let it gather dust for about a year. And eventually, I used it, and I was, well, I was shown how to use it, and I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" So I made that conversion, um, and the rig became more and more digital as it went. But with that, the computer is a very risky instrument to mm-hmm. rely on. So I've had, I've had it crash on a gig for sure. Somehow. I remember I was playing Winter Jazz Fest in New York and the computer crashed, but I just sampled it off into the chaos pad. So the chaos pad is still looping the sound, right? (laughs) Yeah. But the computer's just fried. So I was playing piano. I was playing piano, like soloing or whatever. And as I'm playing piano, with the other hand, I'm restarting the Mac. Oh, God. (laughs) And it's like, you know, hoping it's all cool, so it restarts. And then I fire up Ableton. But then I realized that the clock on Ableton, when you start it up, is going to default to whatever the template that the like session is, right? Or something. Yeah. yeah. And whatever we were wasn't that. So I didn't know what was going to happen when I hit, hit play again. 
And I forget what happened, but it was fine. <laughs> um, but the worst thing recently that is still a fear of mine, um, you know, I have a solid state computer. It's specced up pretty much as high as you can go. I think if you're going to rely on a computer for live performance, you don't want to, you know, f- around with a substandard computer. Yes. Um, but what they don't tell you <laughs> is that the CPU or the CPUs in a quad core, they run around 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Really? Which is why when you put your laptop on your lap, it's really it's hot. Really hot yeah, right? yeah. So at about 212 degrees, it's like brain death. And if you have your laptop, if you're playing, well, if you, when I, <laughs> so I was playing an outdoor festival in LA in the middle of summer. And so we set up out in the sun. I wasn't even thinking about this. Went to play, you know, the line check was cool. Went to play and the computer overheated. So um, I'm running click on my setup and the drummer and I share the click. So this click is like speeding up and slowing down and then kind of going, (laughs) you know, it's like, I don't know what it was. (laughs) And it turns out it was overheating. Wow. So that's, that's actually the biggest risk right now is overheating. It's just temperature. Temperature. And so it gets to a point where it's no joke. It's like I've been in places where I will get a bag of ice from the bar and put it, put a towel over and put the computer on top of that. Like it's a really, it's a, it's a real thing. <laughs> I remember going, I've done some outdoor gigs and I rely on a lot of LED screens. Right. Oh, when the light's on the wrong angle? No, I oh. would say I was in Park City, Utah uh-huh. playing, it was at Sundance or something. Right. We were outside and it was just beaming sun and there was no respite, right? Oh. And I couldn't see any of the pads. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know any, what was no what colors, and, no nothing. And yeah. I, I don't even know how I got through that gig. Yeah, that stuff's dangerous. All. Yeah, people are always like, ha, ha, like, your computer someday, like, when you lose the battery, you won't be able to use it, and I'll be sitting here playing my acoustic guitar. <laughs> and there was, like, there's some truth to that, I guess, in some respects. But you, yes. at least you have the piano there. You can always default to totally. playing piano. Yeah. I would just be screwed. You better get those guitar chops up. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> if, if, you can, if you can click. whistle, though, if you can whistle, you can get away with yeah, it. Yeah, just know? keep singing and do a little <laughs> tap dancing. I had a double-tiered keyboard stand. I had uh-huh. I, would st- I stand for my gigs, right. and so I had, uh, like, a Moog and uh, a launching surface on the top tier and then a Nord on the bottom tier. Mm. And then, anyways, right in the middle of the gig, the the entire stand just buckled. Yeah. And all of my all of my keyboards crashed to the mm-hmm. ground, and the Moog even went off into the crowd and, like, struck a woman in the face. Wow. Yeah. You're like a violent offender. <laughs> it was... And then my interface just unplugged, right? So the entire system just went, oh, <laughs> it was so terrible. I mean, I, I've, I've had an X stand go down one time and at the start of a gig, and that was, it had a Rhodes on it with the MPC. Oh, God. And the Rhodes, you know, it weighs. It's heavy. You know, probably 120 pounds. Yeah. It probably missed my foot by an inch or two. Oh, God. <laughs> and it just smashed down. But the joke was that everything fell off. And so there's the MPC 3000 kind of lying outside. Chugging away it's like beats. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I will not I will not fail you until you sweat into me. That's funny. Right, yeah. See, these are the things that like I'm interested in knowing. Right. I think it's I think that that's what people want to know too. But you have I down. mean I, and, and these things have to happen. Yeah. Like if if you like every mishap I've been through, if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be prepared for it 
to avoid it or to save it when it does happen. And there's nothing you can do to prepare. No. You have to, I mean, you wouldn't no. have known about the, well, I guess maybe you just uh, saved somebody a lot of trouble with their quad core overheating. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so real. Um, but like, there's nothing you could have done to, you know, prevent that from happening until you know, until it's happened to exactly, you. And then yeah. you just, just, you know. It's kind of like driving. Like I, I have this theory that having a, when you're young and you start driving, having a car accident makes you a better driver. I, yeah, I think there's some truth to yeah, that. Yeah, so I think it's along those lines. Learning from your mistakes. Yeah. Just don't kill anyone. have like a pinnacle rig that you could just be like oh I, I used to have this synth or I, I had it like this it was so great like your optimal situation for performing um or are you is it right now what you have I mean it's all I think it's always been now like I'm I try and be pretty you know in the moment and whether that's my process that keeps me there or just my general outlook on life I'm usually yeah right now it's exactly what it needs to be I did have my first Rhodes was so beautiful. It just sounded so good and it played so well and I cut so many records with it. And then 10 years ago, I moved from LA to, from London to LA and I brought that Rhodes from New Zealand to London. But I was like, I'm going to LA. I mean, great. I'll get a new Rhodes. I can't wait. And so I sold my Rhodes for, you know, way underpriced to some young kid who probably loves it. So that's, that was the, the good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Went to LA. I had to buy a Rhodes. I had trouble finding one for some reason, and I had, just had to get one. So I bought the first one, which really was available. And it's okay, but that's that's my only gear regret. Is like wow, only the, one, only one. That's I'm impressed. I mean, the rest is just gear. I mean, no, no. yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's not just gear. I mean, um, <laughs> but you know what? Is I do you know I've never owned an ARP Odyssey. Okay. And that's on my list. That's my bu- one of my bucket list keyboards. And so if I had owned an Up Odyssey and I had to get let go of it, that would be a problem. Okay. But I haven't had that experience. All right. Uh, my MPC 3000 is a really vital part of my history, and it's a great piece of gear. It sits in a box in the garage most of the time, but I'm not letting go of it. In fact, I did have I had a show in New Orleans a couple of years ago, and my laptop as far as I knew, died, like, the day before I went to New Orleans. And I was like, wow, I'm going to have to break out the MP. So I took out the MPC for the first time in six years. Wow. You know, pulled out the zip drive, hoped it worked, and <laughs> had these zip disks. It's like, zip disks is like 2004 live set sounds. Like, hey, cool. All right. <laughs> so, you know, loading up 12-year-old sounds or whatever. Oh, that must have been kind of fun. It sounded amazing. Oh yeah, well, it, it it's just analog demolishes everything digital. Yeah, like good night. It was amazing, and it's interesting because it, I did the gig and it, it, it slowed my my workflow down like by about I'd say about half, um, and it was funny because I noticed that, but to everyone else it's like oh he's he's still, you know, in flow he's as being patient, as yeah. speed or whatever, mm-hmm. um, so it made me appreciate that as well. It's like. You know, s- slower to me is still a decent pace, and it's it's all good. You know, just get the 
get the music done. <laughs> well, sometimes in your videos, you're going so quickly that mm. I don't think people actually appreciate everything that's going on behind the scenes. Right. I, I, I definitely, I don't think I dumb it down, but also, and we're just talking about this at the clinic a little bit. I take this all for granted. Like I, I presume that it's normal. Um, and people say to me, well, it's not normal. It's not normal. And I still think it's normal. And I also, like, I've been doing this for 20 years. Well, yeah, exactly. So, and then, and then I'm like, my other thing is I'm like, it's not rocket science. Yeah. You know, rocket science is heavy. Brain surgery is heavy. Making beats on the fly and stuff is not heavy. Like, you know, you'd be surprised. Really? I think, well, I mean, I teach people how to do these things, right? right? And it's, I think it takes a certain type of mind to, to really... I agree. I agree with that, totally. ...kind of surrender to the technology. Like, because it, it takes a certain amount of being in control, which uh-huh. that's just a knowledge of work uh, functionality and, you know, having control over your technology and then simultaneously surrender, surrendering control. Right. So that's really difficult for a lot of people to to handle because you, you have to be a little type A and a little type B. Yeah. Okay. This is interesting. This, this is the stuff I, I like. So, <laughs> so okay. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of character driven. And people have, have asked me at times, like I'm half Japanese, and people have asked me at times how that plays into my music. And, I mean, there's, there's a, pro- a project I have coming out next year where it literally plays into the music in, a, in an audible way. Mm. But with what we're talking about, um, when I'm in Japan, I really notice how systems are so unbalanced and they'll put things together that they like in the West, we might put them together in a way it might be like urban architecture and you might look at a city and parts of it are just ugly. It's like, why do you put that beside that? Mm -hmm. And maybe they had to put those two buildings there, but if they did it in Japan, those two buildings would be in balance. Like there's a yin yang thing for real. Yeah. And, um, I think that plays into how I treat the creative process with technology. And then the my other thought around that is that when I do you know, create on the fly and perform, I, I see it as Tetris. Like it's just shapes. Patterns. Patterns. Yeah, and it's, exactly. and it's, it's very visual. And um, I mean, it sounds like maybe you have a sim- you, you approach it in a similar way. And I know not everyone does that. You know, people, people see and hear things differently. Yeah. Yeah. I have... I like to start a lot of my sets empty also, mm-hmm. and I, I will work with clients, and I'll really try to push them to be a little bit more nonlinear, mm-hmm. and it's either you can or you cannot. Interesting. There's, like, two types of people in my huh. mind. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> those who can think in a line and those who can think, you know, outside of one, uh-huh. um, but I think it's I, – I bet you a rocket scientist wouldn't be able to do what you do. <laughs> Well, we could, we, we could try and teach. We could try and teach them. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have to try that one day. I've been at Live User. Maybe eight years or something. Uh-huh. So I, I never was using a different tool beforehand. And um, right. I've worked for Ableton a lot, and I've, I'm a push product specialist, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of knowledge about this specific tool. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly getting people asking me to compare and contrast machine with push. Yeah. You know, and I, and I almost feel sort of like it's my job to 
push people in this one direction. I mean, literally, it has been my job to do that. And so I've never really messed with machine Mm. except to help my clients troubleshoot using it in the the context of Ableton Live, right? Right. So since you're so into these tools like i want to know why machine <laughs> what what is it about the tool um so I, I do do a lot of work for native instruments but i don't feel any bias so i'm just going to be as honest as i can okay um firstly i think push is incredible i think it's but you said you would never use it live no but i do use push <laughs> you know i i, I have one right, i at like home. it okay I, I love the build of it Mm-hmm. I think the the build quality has always been superior, um, and I like the functionality. You know, they they just want to get you off the computer, basically. Yep. And they've done that, so now it's cool. For me, what I what I like and what I need, um, I need to be able to I need to be able to create in flow state. And I mean, sometimes I will literally sit at the piano and compose. And, I mean, that's a different kind of flow state. But how dare but, you? But, right, how dare I? <laughs> Are you writing on manuscript paper? Um, or other times I might be working on a production and I might be, you know, I could be in logic and I could be being very kind of linear and, syst- and kind of systematic about my approach. Mm-hmm. But what I find is the the kind of, kind of hotline to my creativity is the live setup and it it allows me to basically sketch and create and manipulate stuff as I imagine it almost in real time so what's important in doing that is that say you know say I want to use I mean typically one kind of groove or track idea that's happening I might be using four drum kits and let's say five soft synths, like a bass, some pads, some leads, whatever it might be. Okay. So there's nine elements, mm-hmm. right? Tracks. So if I'm using live, that's nine tracks. If I want to switch from track to track, I've got an arm, you know, select an arm. I don't have time for that. Like I've no time pushing. at all for that. Extra button pushing. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but on... On um, on machine, I just you know if if it's if I'm going to a certain kit, I hit that you know pad bank the B button or whatever it might be, and I'm there. If I want to sequence using a certain sound, I just select that pad in the in in my soft synth soft synth bank, and it's assigned to the keyboard automatically, and I'm there. I am I'm sequencing, so I'm not even thinking about tracks. Mm. That that's the difference. Okay. Yeah. I was looking into videos, and I, I thought you were going to say it was, like, size of the pads. Well, I, I mean, it, I think I, I would get used to that. You would, yeah. But um, one of my friends... Or, because it looks like you really like to hit them pretty hard. Yeah, but you can hit you can hit the push hard. Sure, you could change the threshold settings, but it's it's also so sensitive. Right. Just, like, I, I wondered if, especially because you were coming from an NPC, that machine was just this, like, natural progression of, like, the tactile... Yeah, it, it made sense... I mean, actually, when I first used it, it didn't make any sense because it looked like an NPC, but it didn't act like an NPC. Mm. It actually took an NPC user who teaches machine to show me the, how, how it works, <laughs> um, which is great because he taught me it in NPC language. You know, I think um, there's this whole part of the world that hasn't been tapped yet. It's like 
Ableton for Pro Tools users. Right. Or machine for MPC <laughs> hey, users. You know, it's a growth market. Okay, so this this guy <laughs> told it to you the way you needed to understand yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I was sold immediately. Um and so, you know, pad size was relative to the MPC. It didn't feel anywhere near as good as the three thousand. Mm-hmm. And nothing has to this day. Um but then, you know, I see someone like you know, my boy Stro, like Stro Elliott, he's in the roots and he's a push finger drummer. You know, I see Stro just smashing drum breaks on push. And at first I was like, dang, how do you play on, you know, buttons that small? But I guess you get used to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've I've seen people also play play keys on push in a way which just blows my mind. Um you probably know Jonathan Stein, right? Yeah. I mean he's a Beast. Speaking of being non-linear, yeah, that XY with the push, the grid controller, it took me a while to sort of <laughs> come from a piano place, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and then try to go up and down. As yeah. Close. Yeah, it was just, I, mean, I, I still can't, like, if, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a completely different thing. <laughs> the, the one thing I do dig is it has that kind of guitar thing where, you know, say with a chord, once you have a voicing, shapes, it can yeah. go anywhere. Yes. And the piano does not have that. Yep. Um, so... I imagine it's easier, but what's easier if you've never learned how to play a keyboard? <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree. Or if you've played a fretted instrument. Like, yeah. Oh, this makes a ton of sense Which, to me. Which I believe Jonathan's he's a, he's bass, a bass player, player. right? Yeah. yeah. So he's a, yeah, he's a killing bass player. Yeah, so everyone should check me. out Jonathan Stein if you haven't from oh Team God. Supreme. He's based Amazing. in Brooklyn and he's, he's making some cool stuff out there. Incidentally, did you know that the first push that the prototype was made out of Legos? Jesse Terry made it out of Legos, or what did they do? I was I I forget the dude's name, but I was at um Jazzy Jeff's playlist retreat mm-hmm. a few years back, and dude was there, and we're talking about it, and yeah, yeah, that was Jesse. He made it out of Legos. I don't, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I to- absolutely believe that about him. <laughs> you get some smart people over there, right? Smart and cool. Yeah, they got a lot of brand value right now. Yes. Are you going to be at Loop? You know what's funny is that I'm. Every year, I'm always like, I should be at Loop. I should be at Loop. And then this year, I'm like, cool. It's in LA. No, no, I wasn't. I was like, cool. I've got a Europe tour in November. I'll be at Loop. Oh, no. And then, and then they're like, oh, we're in LA this November. Couldn't believe it. So you so, haven't been before? I haven't even been yet. No. Oh, you absolutely have to do that. Oh, I will. That. I will. Yeah. yeah. You're perfect. You're it'll perfect. it'll get planned properly one time. And, All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to see how this happens in Hollywood. Because you're know, going to Berlin for an electronic sort of yeah, summit. Yeah, it makes like, sense. Oh, it's, it's almost romantic in a way. But like the heart of Hollywood. But is it in Hollywood? Yes. Oh, that's a bit wrong. I know, right? It's it's not the nicest place you could do something like I that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing stuff in L.A. And sure. I think a lot of people who are not familiar with L.A. get confused between L.A. and Hollywood. <laughs> Two different places. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and then Hollywood and West Hollywood are two different places, too. It's like, you know, West Hollywood is what people are really f- kind of painting, tarring the L.A. with one brush. Like, mm. you know, that's all the wannabes and everything. And then Hollywood is like homeless people and crackheads. And exactly. It's like, really? Yeah. I and mean, we're bringing a group of students and I'm already sort of like, I need to bring protective like <laughs> weapons or what, what do I need to bring to protect these students from these crazy people? You don't they're, 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 I think they're harmless. But so, it's, just, it's just not a desirable vibe there. No, it's not. You know, downtown would have been dope. The east side would have been dope. Yeah. Well, maybe next year it'll be someplace even cooler. Yeah, Tokyo would be great. Yes. <gasps> Oh, right? yes. Yeah. Plant that seed. Yeah. <laughs> if 
anybody from Ableton's listening right Make some now. Calls. So you have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, right? So how do you balance, and I'm asking this because I personally want to know, Uh how do you balance your career with your family? It's very, very difficult. And I, honestly, I don't know anyone who who does it well unless they're incredibly successful. Yeah, you have to have the money to. Make yeah, if it you can like, you know, bring the kids on tour, bring a nanny when they're older, bring a tutor, all that kind of thing. Yeah. That's a, that's the a dream. But that's yeah. like some 90s money. That's like a different <laughs> That's not this industry. No. <laughs> well, it is, but not this not in this not on this timeline. <laughs> Maybe in a parallel universe, it's all good. You know, every jazz musician has an old pair traveling with them and stuff. Um but yeah, it's challenging, and I do really feel for mothers in that situation because there's the societal, you know, expectations, which are fortunately becoming more of a conversation now. Um, but then also just the real biological necessity of a mother with a, especially with a baby or a toddler. You know, the mother's the primary connection. You know, as a dad, I didn't really exist to my to my um, older boy until he was about three. And then one day it's Did like, that bother you? It's like, Dad. <laughs> um, you know what didn't bother me? Like, I would say, I'm, I'm firstly to say my relationship with my 15-year-old is amazing at this point. Um, when he was born, I kind of freaked out. You know, I went on tour. And then if I could elongate that tour, I elongated that tour. Really? And, you know, on the one hand, I was like, well, I'm the breadwinner, so i got to earn the money. This is how yeah. I earn money. Yep. On the other hand, part of me was a more subconscious part was just not ready to man up to it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I'm on tour. Um, and then when he was three or four, it really landed a lot more. And so at this point, I, I limit tours. Like three weeks is about the most I'll do. Um, I'm at a point where the kids are older, so they're not they're not as dependent. At the same time, I don't want to miss everything. Right. And now and then, you know, you can't help but miss a birthday. Or I mean, it's inevitable. If you if you travel for any work, sooner or later, you're going to miss your kid's birthday. Yeah. Unless you're the Fortune 500 CEO. Um, I think it's hard on the on the on the partner who's at home. You know, they basically become a single mom or a single dad while you're away, and. You know, it's it's great to be able to bring home the mortgage or the rent and the pay the bills and stuff, but I know that's really really challenging to be alone without your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also difficult when I think a lot of people financially it gets challenging where maybe before you had a kid, you went that extra mile with your expenses and had a studio space or something. And then you have a kid and it's like, well, we can't really afford that. So let's make the, It'll be the you know, baby's room. Yeah. And then the, the studio will be in the living room or whatever. And, and there's that thing of like, I think a lot of people, and I'm guilty of this. A lot of people have trouble separating work and home, um, awareness and hours and time and, 
just how you share that out. Um, and I think the best piece of advice I would give anyone who's struggling with all that would be to work out how to how to learn time management. Because I think it's I think it's great to be a hundred one hundred and ten percent focused on your art, but that can't you can't be. 60% focused on your art when you should be 100% focused on your kid or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. And, you know, with a nine to five, it's a little easier to do that. You, know, you leave the office or whatever and work's done. You're at home chilling with the family. But I think when you're in more of a creative or even just a self-employed or independent kind of vocation, you can't help but, you know, be having ideas while you're doing the dishes or and then you want to start working on something or whatever it might be. And I guess I just... In a way that can't that that isn't ideal. At the same time, for some people, that's perfect, and the kids grow up around this, you know, amazing creative artistic house. And yeah, uh, there's you know, there's no there's no rules. Um, is your son a musician? The younger one is um, my stepson. He is prodigious, like beats, drums, and the older one is a great basketball player who listens to really average music <laughs> but but he, he does it he appreciates good music but you know what's funny the older one who's that are you the, cool to them am i am i still cool are you cool yeah um i'm still relatively cool there are cooler people because they <laughs> they've also met some cooler people so it's like um but it's funny the older one who isn't a hooping and you know migos um <laughs> Which is, you know, I, I can enjoy a bit of Migos, but it's not... <laughs> My husband you know. likes to listen to Migos, and I'm always like, turn that off. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind a bit of it. There's, I have an issue with the lyrical content yeah, no, of music today. It's absolutely like the yeah, substance of production's it. Production's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing about him is when he, when he was two, he, he, he asked me to put on some John Coltrane. Ooh. And... And I was thinking, well, you're just saying that you're like, because I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, you're just saying that because you've heard me say that or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I put on some Ornette Coleman. <laughs> he was not having it. Are you kidding me? He was me? spazzing out. Wow. And and then I was like, okay, now I'll put on some train. And he calmed down immediately. And it wasn't you're like kidding a, me. and I, I no, I'm not. I didn't put on a train. It's not like I always played one train record, so it wasn't a certain record. Right. But I thought about this and it's always stuck with me is that if you look at music as shapes, to me, train is, is circles and Ornette is not. Ornette's more kind of weird shapes, but you know, train like more angular. Yeah. And you know, obviously you know, relative to each other, I guess. And train, especially, you know, you get into the sixties modal thing to me, it's, it's all circles and they're quite, they're very oval, <laughs> like, and I was I just thought maybe to a two year old that kind of impression is there, um, but now he listens to Lil Yachty and Migos. <laughs> what a great story! <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I always my son's too small to know, you know, right from left at this point. But part of me, so this is going to segue into my my next question yeah. here is that I get my ears get so exhausted from working. Mm. That often when I go home, I don't want to hear music. Sure. 
right? Because it just, I can't enjoy, I can't passively do this thing because it's a thing that I do mm-hmm. for a living. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, the only thing I can handle is talk radio. So I think that, <laughs> honestly, my son hasn't even very heard very much music. Right. And, you know, part of me is like, uh, you know, I if I was going to choose a profession for somebody, I don't think that I would choose this for right. him, you know, and it, you know, even though I'm very pleased and happy with myself, mm. I don't know if I would want that for another person. Mm-hmm. Just kind of the the struggles that you, you go through with it. So my son doesn't listen to music yet, um, <laughs> mostly because my ears are fatigued. Yeah. So, like, how do you deal with burnout with your ears? So imagine you have burnout with your ears and then you have Migos at full blast. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds horrible. It's painful. <laughs> I mean, extension. Extentacion. Whatever his name is. <laughs> I don't know what ex, it is. We're ex, both saying it ex. wrong. I mean, I thought he was super talented, but some of that stuff was just. Rest in oh peace. Oh my God. By the way. Well, yeah, of course. But the kids will blast that mm-hmm. when I'm like, I don't, I can't hear music right now. It's like, okay, it's okay, dad. You can put on some jazz. It's like, no, I don't want to hear anything. <laughs> um, but how do I deal with that? I'm I have times when I I never ever used to treat music as wallpaper. You know, for a lot of people it is, right? For the mm, average person I would say music is it fills up a certain space in the environment. And I never could get with that. Now I can. You know, I can ch- I can choose how much I engage with what is what I'm hearing. And when I mean, if my ears are really tired, then you know silence is golden, and I, I, I can't even do talk radio. Like I'm, I don't want anything. But I do, you know, I like to have music on, and I don't have to be fully engaged with it. Sometimes it it pulls me into that engagement, but um, yeah, I, I don't feel as tied to it as I was. So you can separate separate one from the other now. Yeah, and no, I think that just came from. I think it came from age, to be honest. Um, for me, some people get it earlier. Like I had a, a bass player friend. Um, excuse me, I have a bass player friend. I said I said that like he passed away. I have a or bass he's player. He's no friend. longer your friend. No, we're still friends, and he's still alive. <laughs> but um, he's he's one of the greatest bass players in the in the American jazz scene, as far as I'm concerned. And we grew up together in New Zealand. And I remember he said to me one day, we were probably about 19, and he said to me. I'm I'm so done with that emotional bullshit with music. And I didn't understand. It took me another almost 20 years to understand. And for him to have had that revelation at that age, I think is incredible. So many people are caught up in the idea of artistry being this emotional, painful thing, and I need to be inspired to create. And I'm an artist, therefore I don't do this or what or that or I only do this and and my art is my life my art is me and he he was at 19 saying that's all bullshit I'm just gonna be the best bass player I can be and he did it and his artistry in his instrument is incredible and it took me a long time to get to that same conclusion but I do realize now that that's the bottom line like um, I'm actually I'm listening to listening to an audio book at the moment about narcissism, 
That's really interesting, mm-hmm. especially in the this day and age. Yeah. And there's one point they're talking about art and how there's a thing now with creativity and art where it's like you've got to express yourself. And they're saying how that's not what art was. Art was never about that. You know, art was always, you know, I mean, always everything's always been like, you know, 10% talent, 90% hard work. But you're, you know, you're in service to the art. You're not in service to yourself. You're the vessel. Yes. But that's not the, that's not the general that's way things are now. Right, okay. Um, and so that kind of attitude, like the, the kind of old, old, the, the old school attitude, the, the idea of making it devoid of emotional attachment makes total sense. It's like this, this art is happening. Because you're removing yourself from the situation. Exactly, yeah. And then so, so there's a band I play with in LA a lot, um, the singer Dwight Tribble. And he leads a prayer circle before every gig. And almost every time he mentions, he prays that we get out of our own way. I like that. And that's imperative. You know, it's the, the music, you know, if I, I could be doing a solo set at a dance party rave with a thousand people who think it's the greatest thing ever. And they're like, Mark, you're amazing. It's like, well, none of that really, you know, there's a level of, yeah, that's nice, but that is, has no relevance on the music. Mm. You know, I'm just there to let the music happen. And it, like you said, a vessel. Um, and so I think, I don't, I don't know how we got to this point, but that strikes <laughs> me as being really, really important. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I feel like my best moments are when I'm like almost blacked out. Right, right, exactly. It's like, you know, you, you almost don't know what's happening. And I don't know how that happened, but it happened. And and then you can't really, you can't really insert your ego into that because if you're being honest to yourself, you don't know how it happened. So it just happened. I think for me, the technology is actually a gateway to that blackout phase. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because, and I don't know if you feel the same way as a piano player, like there's this limb independence thing that's happening, mm-hmm. right? Like your right hand could be doing something completely independent of your left hand. And then your feet are involved also mm. from time to time with like pedals and whatnot. So once I started, you know, playing synth bass with my left hand and playing keys with my right hand and triggering things and singing, I literally would put myself in a place where I couldn't think real thoughts. Right. Because I was so engaged in what was actually happening that I couldn't think. Yeah. And for me, it just almost became an addiction. I totally get that. I mean, for me, when the whole, when my entire rig is working seamlessly, it's so easy because I'm just zoning, I'm just, you know, surfing through the zone. The problem is when something's not really working, then it becomes, I've got, I do have to think about it. But the less I think, the less, en- ironically, the less I engage, the more engaged it is. See, it's the control, but no control. It's wow. <laughs> the yin and the yang coming right back to the, <laughs> come right back around. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to end it. Cool. It's like nice philosophical, happy thoughts there. Yeah. All right, so thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Thank you for it was having me. My pleasure to interview you. Good to chat. Twelve years after seeing your first <laughs> live show. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any upcoming episodes.